With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. You know when you're listening to an amazing true crime podcast and it's an entire investigation and you hear some crazy stuff on it and you just need someone to talk about it with? Well, we've been there. Podcast listening can be a lonely business. That's why we started the True Crime Podcast Club. It's kind of like a book club, but for true crime podcasts. Our first series will be the Cold Podcast, which is all about the disappearance of Susan Cox Powell. We'll listen to every episode and have a weekly live stream inside a private Facebook group to do a deep dive discussion of all the episodes. To register for the club, go to patreon.com slash killerqueenspod and sign up for the $10 a month tier, which is called True Crime Podcast Club. That's your ticket to the group and we'll be launching the first week of November. That way you'll have some time to get the first week's episodes in. Again, it's patreon.com slash killerqueenspod. Can't wait to see you there. Welcome back. Hey. To episode, who knows? <laughs> but, um, we're you happy know. to have you. Yeah. Hey, how's it going? We are going to cover today the, well, today and next week, the Andrea Yates case. Woof. Yeah, get ready for that. Of course, you probably already knew that because you clicked on it, but, you know, surprise, it's Andrea Yates. <laughs> And uh, if you've never listened to the show before, just, you know, know that this might be a little bit different. You can give it a listen, give it a chance. Um, But if you're coming in looking for a sword and scale or crime junkie, that's not what this is going to be. We're going to have obscure movie quotes going on. We're going to sometimes just go off and talk about other anecdotes. Yeah, because we're buds here. It's like, yeah. Everybody, like, a lot of our reviews say that it just feels like they're sitting around talking about a case with their friends. pals. Yeah. yeah. So, that's what it is. And, and if, that's actually what we were going for, so I'm actually really glad people say that. I know, same. But if you are not into that, that's totally fine. Yep, no worries. He totally cool. Yeah. So, just letting you know, up front, what kind of show it is, and we'll get in to the case. This one, we actually got several requests for it. The people that used the form to request it were Casey, I don't, Good Ballet, Good Ballot. I don't know, maybe I'm doing the thing that I do where I make everything like Charlebois. <laughs> uh, Ida, Ellie Smittendorf, and Bailey Wiseman. Wow. So, well, thank you so much. I'm, yeah. Obviously, you guys wanted us to get real angry and maybe see us cry. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, and also thank you to Sloan for uh, researching and writing most of this. And she put at the beginning of the research trigger warning, child death, postpartum depression, mental health, talk of suicide, and sorry for making you cry, Torella. (laughs) (laughs) And the, there's a YouTube, it's, 
I guess it's a documentary. Uh, it's called Mugshots Killer Women, A Mother's Madness. I think you could put that in the documentary category. Yeah. Categorize it. Yeah. So we watched that as well, and you can find it on YouTube also if you want to watch it. It's, for free, right? It's not under the... Yeah, yeah, YouTube for free. Red or whatever. And it's, uh, I mean, it's older, but I mean, this case happened in 2001, so... A yeah. lot of the coverage you're going to find is older. Yeah, for sure. Sometimes it seems that we have seen so much violence that we have lost our capacity to be shocked, to be horrified. But then something like the last couple of days in Houston happens, and we find there are still things that can take our breath away. Andrea Yates called police to her home yesterday morning. Inside, they found four little boys, ages two to seven, and a six-month-old baby girl, all apparently drowned. Today, we began to get an explanation. The children's father, Russell Yates, said his wife suffered from serious postpartum depression, that she once tried to take her own life. He said she'd become so sick that it was not the wife he knew who killed the children. On the morning of June 20th, 2001, Houston police got a 911 call from a woman claiming that she needed the police. The caller tells the dispatcher that her name is Andrea Yates and that she needs the police. She's calm, she's emotionless, and she answers the questions the dispatcher asks her. And the thing about it is, like, calm and emotionless is almost an understatement. I was <laughs> like, gonna say, that's uh, generous yeah. to say. <laughs> it's crazy how, I mean, she's really just like... Like a robot. Yeah, yeah. It's It's almost like there's nothing there. If you were to, like be in front of her and wave your hands in front of her eyes, it's like they wouldn't move. It, that's how it sounds. And the dispatcher is really confused. She's like, okay, what do you need, though? Like, why are we sending somebody? And so then she thinks, well, maybe there's somebody in the house and she can't say what's going on, right? So she's trying to be secretive. And so the woman's like, is he right there with you? And she's like, what? No. And then she's like, is she there with you? <laughs> like, obviously, this has to be the answer, right? Yeah. Like, there's got to be somebody. Is it claws or clogs? Wait, did you say claws? No. no. Claws. No. <laughs> so it's like, she's like, what? Okay, then what is it? Yeah, what is it? So she's like, look, just send somebody over here. And she's like, are you ill? And Andrea's like, uh, yeah, I'm ill. And she says, so you need an ambulance? And she's like, no, I need the police. Yeah, okay, send an ambulance. And then that's it. So after repeatedly telling the dispatcher that her husband's not home, because she also asked if her husband was home, um, the dispatcher finally is like, okay, I'm, I'm going to send him out there. So once she gets off the phone with 911, she calls her husband, Rusty, who's at his job at NASA. Wow. Yeah, talk about like childhood dream come true. I know, right? Like how often does that happen? Literally never. How often would you ever go to work and be able to say, um, oh, fuck, I just forgot about what they say whenever they're up there and they're like um, talking to the people and it's somebody's name. Houston, we got a problem. Yes. But I, you know, when you're little, you that's what you play. When yeah. you're playing Armageddon. Yeah, exactly. That's what you say. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. Rusty could do it for real. He could. I mean, I don't, he wasn't a, no oh, fuck. What's the things? Astronaut. Jesus. Okay, whatever. Anyway. <laughs> She tells Rusty to come home and he says, well, is something wrong? And she says, yes. And he's like, is something wrong with the kids? She says, yes. And he says, how many? And she says, all of them. 
I know, it's so ominous. Officer David Knapp was patrolling when he received a call to perform a welfare check at 942 Beachcomber Lane. When he arrived at the location, Officer Knapp was met by a woman with long brown hair who was wet and breathing heavily. He asks her why she's called for the police, but he's not ready for this answer. Are you guys ready? I sure as shit am not. Yeah. Okay, get ready. She tells the officer, I just killed my kids. <laughs> officer Knapp asks where the children are, and Andrea tells him they're in bed. He makes his way through the one-story brick house and eventually comes to the master bedroom where he finds a king-size bed with burgundy sheets pulled up over what appeared to be children sleeping. But once he pulled back the sheets, he realized that there were five children who were not sleeping, but instead were colorless and lifeless, and they had froth on their noses and mouths. At least three of them did. He knew that the children were beyond the help of the emergency services. Seven-year-old Noah, five-and-a-half-year-old John, three-and-a-half-year-old Paul, two-year-old Luke, and six-month Mary were all dead, and their mother had confessed to being the one to take their lives by drowning them in the bathtub. It's it's horrific. Mm-hmm. Andrea Kennedy was born on July 2nd, 1964 to Andrew and Karen Kennedy in Houston, Texas. Andrea's parents were from Ireland and Karen was a German immigrant. The youngest of five children, Andrea was devoted to her parents and helping everyone. She wanted nothing more than to do for others instead of doing for herself. She frequently helped the elderly people in her neighborhood, and she strived for excellence in all areas of her life. And I bet she's a two. I bet. Yeah. Yeah, I bet she is. And I don't know. They also said she was a... I guess twos are people pleasers, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, she's a two. So, Enneagram. We're, we yes. like the Enneagram, yeah. and we like to... Diagnose. Yeah, if you when we only that. very... We know very little. Like <laughs> anyway. Surface characteristics. Yeah. Um, but like her friends that they talked to and family, they said she wasn't like a perfectionist. She wasn't the kind of person that was like, would not accept anything less of other people. It's just she wanted everything to be great for herself. Like she wanted to always do better. So a standard that she set for herself. Yeah, she wanted everything. She just wanted to know that she did the absolute best she could in everything that she did. Hmm. Um, so that's kind of, I mean, she was even like, she was the swim team captain in high school. She was the historian for the National Honor Society. She was valedictorian. Wow. She went on to study nursing at the University of Texas. So even she was a um, star student, right? Even she was, yes. Yeah. We're quoting my almost four-year-old. Well, toddlers always start stories or sentences with even i feel like i've seen it a lot like, yeah even i went up the stairs earlier today yeah sure okay yeah ben will be like so we did this and this and this and even we did that <laughs> yeah um so during her time in college andrea didn't date and her friend since eighth grade marlene work said that andrea didn't even date once until she graduated from from nursing school not high school so she was like you know, Andrea was kind of the last person we expected to have five kids and get married because she literally just, like, never had a boyfriend. A little bit of a late bloomer. Yeah, yeah. If you will. Some, some of us are. Yes. When she graduated from college in 1986, Andrea moved to her own apartment and got a job as a registered nurse at MD Anderson Cancer Center. Now, that is Mm -hmm. 
Impressive. Yes, very impressive. So, again, you know, she wasn't going to – she was going to do really well, like, and she well, was going to – she strove for excellence, yeah. Yeah, and she was going to go and get a job somewhere that was – Wait, how does – what's the past tense of strive? I think strove. Okay, because it sounded super wrong coming out of my mouth. I'll tell you what word has sounded the most wrong to me when I've said it several times. What? This is – you guys, this is so stupid. Plead or pled? Fork. But if you say it a bunch and then you start thinking about it and you spell it and then you're like, is Are right? you high as a kite right now? Fork has just Fork? been one of those words that like sometimes I'll say it and then I'm like, wait, is that right? <laughs> That's so funny. It's a weird word. <laughs> so, sure. I, I'm not going to qualify for a job at MD Anderson. Cancer no, Center. no. One day while she was floating on her back in the pool, she was noticed by a man in her complex named Rusty Yates. Mm. He noticed her. She was just a floating. And he thought, I could never be with that woman. <laughs> She's too good for me. Oh. And he tried to talk to her and Andrea was like, bye. And she kind of blew him off that day. But then later, she made the first move. They a dated. saucy minx. I know. They dated for three years before they got married on April 17th, 1993. Aw. And Rusty told author Susie Spencer, who wrote Breaking Point about this case, that Andrea didn't like sex. What? Yeah. And he thought that, like, once they got married, it would get better. He said that... Because they lived together before they got married. And even when they lived together... <laughs> she... I said it right. <laughs> even when they lived together, she would change clothes, like, in the closet, not in front of him. Poor Rusty. I know. It's like... I mean, he's seen it, right? Like, I don't you know. I think, yeah. Maybe she was a never nude. Maybe. She wore denim cut-off shorts. Maybe she didn't even know about denim cut-off shorts yet. Oh. She didn't have them. Yeah, that's tough. But, yeah, so he thought it would get better after they got married, but after their wedding, she wasn't any more interested in sex and would still get dressed in the closet. I mean, they go on to have five kids. How did they do that? Artifice, artificial insemination or something? Or? <laughs> yeah, right. I don't know. They had sex at least the five times. Well. So there's that. Some people, though, I heard um, that Rusty, I didn't find this anywhere that I could. Like quote or cite or something? Yeah, but, and I can't remember where I heard it, but somebody said that. Sounds legit. Yeah, that Rusty referred to Andrea as fertile myrtle and said that anytime they wanted to get pregnant, they could. Oh. Um, so maybe she just thought about it and that's all it took. Maybe, but it does sound like that, it, I mean, you know, because Diane Downs knew her cycle really well and she could get pregnant after just like one time. That's true. Yeah. Or maybe she just got drunk. That worked for a bunch of girls in my high school. <laughs> <laughs> that's a friend's reference. Don't come for me. So Andrea continued to work as a nurse after they got married, but before they had their first anniversary, Andrea gave birth to their first son, Noah. And at this point, Andrea was faced with the decision whether or not to go back to work. Some people said that Andrea wanted to go back to work, that she liked working, that she really wanted to go back. And then if you ask Rusty, though, he would say, no, she didn't. We talked about it. She had the option to go back to work if she wanted to. And she said, no, I'm a mom now. This is all that matters. I'm going to stay home with my kid. So... The author of Breaking Point, Susie Spencer, was like, you know, she was a people pleaser. She probably would tell whatever 
you know, if you guys are having a conversation and you say, I think you should go back to work, she'd say, I want to. Or if you say you shouldn't, then she would say, I don't want to. Like, she just just read the audience and knew what she needed to say, depending on who she was talking to. Gotcha. So, oh, and I'm sorry, it was Marlene Wark, not the author that said that. So they really didn't know what she really wanted to do. But in the end, she did quit her job and she stayed home with Noah. And unfortunately, Andrea didn't have an easy time after giving birth. Psychiatrist for the defense, Dr. Lucy Perrier, said that Andrea claimed to begin hearing voices and having delusions during this time. She said that Satan started telling her to get a knife and to stab someone. Oh, God. But she kept those thoughts a secret from everyone, and that was her way to handle things. She just kind of kept it all inside. Don't cry out loud. Yeah. So, yeah, and I think part of that is that feeling of needing to be perfect, right? She's got to be this perfect mom. She's got to be able to handle this. She can't be somebody who, now that you have a kid... You're struggling. You've got to be able to do it all, keep up the house, have dinner on the table by the time Rusty gets home, like all these things. And not have any mental issues yeah. Yeah. directly after, right? I mean, yeah, your life has to be perfect in rainbows and butterflies because yeah. this child has completed you. Well, and you know what, too? I mean, first of all, can you imagine, like, Andrea, There, so many women had this issue, right? Postpartum depression is super common Mm -hmm. but this was before the age of social media like Chrissy Teigen was (laughs) interviewed about it yeah so like yeah and a lot of people weren't talking about it and it was kind of a very taboo sort of thing so like even now you kind of look at things and there's so many women I mean just so many people even that I just know personally like once they have their kids they're all over Instagram all the time and they take these like perfectly filtered pictures and whatever of them with their kid going for a walk or whatever. And they're just like, I'm so blessed to be this kid's mom. And like, I, I love every day and all this stuff. And I'm like, I mean, I feel that way too, but there's a lot of days that I'm like, you know, I, especially early on, I wore yoga pants for seven days straight, <laughs> you know, like, um, I've been covered in vomit every day because like there was a point where Ben, when he was little, he would projectile spit up like every day until we got his like formula figured out. You know, there's all these things that like happen and you go through and it's not perfect, but we're expected to adjust to those things and your hormones are way the fuck out of whack. And not to mention your body's supposed to bounce back immediately. Oh, yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like so disappointing to come home from the hospital and you had the baby and you're like my stomach still looks the same and then you see all these like fitness mommy bloggers or whatever that are like seven hours postpartum totally back to you know whatever and I'm like fuck you right (laughs) I don't know it's just yeah that kind of stuff it's there's just so much that goes into it it's it's a lot I remember one time Andrew came home I was still on maternity leave and he'd gone back to work and First of all, he sat in his car in the driveway for like five or six minutes when he got home. And I was like, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. Like, I've been here all day. You got to go to work today. Like, get the fuck in the house or whatever. But then he gets in the house and he, I'm like trying to get dinner ready and like all this stuff. And Andrew's like, hey, it's okay. I've got it. Like, Ben's taking a nap. I will cook dinner. Go take a bath. Like, go relax. And I got so offended and I 
started sobbing and I was like oh so you're just telling me that I can't handle this and I was just like freaking out and he was like that's so not what I'm trying to tell you right now like he was just like you've been home with the baby all day that's a lot of work like he was just trying to be helpful yeah yeah. and I took it as you can't handle this and I was like no it's fine I'll I'll, I can do it all and then I went and I remember this I sat in the bathtub and cried for 20 minutes I was just like I mean there's just so many emotions it's crazy so I cannot imagine like it's just a lot like yes and to to have those those visions and things too you've got to be thinking like what the fuck is going on right now right so let's just recap do a little quick recap recap of what we just talked about like before we went on this tangent Mm -hmm. so andrea rusty got married they just had their first child noah Mm -hmm. she's at this point hearing voices telling her to stab people Yes. Stab someone. Stab someone, yes. But okay. she's not telling anybody about it. Not telling anyone because she wants... Yet. We think she wants to just keep everything perfect and... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then over the next four years, Andrea and Rusty had two more sons, John and Paul. And friends said that after John was born, Andrea started to become more reclusive and less physically active. So... During all of this, though, okay, so, like, as if that's not bad enough, right? You're you're having kids, you're a young family, Rusty's working, you're staying home. That's difficult already. You have no friends, no nothing, apparently. You've become reclusive at this mm-hmm. point. Yeah. And then on top of that, they were following the teachings of a fire and brimstone street preacher. Oh, my. Michael Warrenecki and his wife, Rachel. So Michael was a former college football player, and his wife was a former cheerleader. And Rusty met them in college. The Warrenekis were frequently in trouble for their preachings and spectacles and eventually took their ministry on the road, leaving their home state of Michigan. Why were they in trouble, does it say? Do you know? So they would get in trouble for, like, because they would literally be on the street and he would wear this like kind of devil looking mask and he would just scream at people and so I think they probably got in trouble for like loitering and like I don't know all these kind of things so it to avoid prosecution in Michigan they they basically like moved into a camper and just went on the road and they would just like travel all over the place and they would correspond with their uh people their congregants i guess you could say but they never like met in church together or anything via like letters and videos so what they did was and they had six kids so they have six kids like in, in a camper, camper. Wow. yeah that they're living in and what they said in the documentary is that he began preaching his version or his particular brand of christianity to anyone who would listen and he would just scream it at even people who didn't listen They preached that few people make it to salvation and that a person should live an austere life, meaning simple or not excessive. They believed that having a job and home is basically sinning because that's in direct opposition to austere living. Wait, wait, wait. Having a job and a home? Yes. So they're saying, look at us. We are perfect Christians. We live in this trailer. We don't have an actual house. We don't have too many belongings. Uh, Neither one of us have actual jobs. And and what Michael Warrenecki said was that you needed to be at home with your wife and kids at all times to make sure that they were like, who can afford that? 
Exactly. Well, and also, uh, Michael Warnecke, how are you putting any food on the table? And also, let's just, for the sake of this conversation, talk about the fact that home is where the heart is, okay? So your home is actually that camper. Yeah. So you do have a fucking home. Well, yeah, that's true. And to follow these teachings, Andrea and Rusty sold their home (gasps) and they moved into a camper into like a a mobile home, uh, a trailer park. Okay. And by the time that Paul was born, their third child, Andrea was closer to the Warneckies than Rusty. So basically what happened is, again, Rusty's going to work. Now they live in a fucking trailer or camper. And they've got three kids. And Andrea is getting all of her social interaction, basically, from the Warneckies. But she's also getting all of her, basically, spiritual guidance from them. And she was basically always in contact with them, and she followed their their teachings to the letter. Rusty only believed some of the stuff that he preached. I mean, obviously, because he still had a job. Like, he was like, I'm not quitting my job right. and staying, stay, you know, going to live in a camper. One day while reading the Warnecke's newsletter, they sent out a newsletter often, Andrew and Rusty saw that they had a used converted Greyhound bus for sale. And this was one more move to their austere life. So they bought the bus from them and moved in with their three kids. Noah and John slept in the luggage compartment while the rest of the family slept in the cabin. Okay. Yeah. And Michael Warnecke also believed that you, like, you shouldn't buy, like, disposable diapers or whatever. So she used all cloth diapers. She's got, you know, two or three kids at a time who are in diapers. She's in a bus, like... I don't know if, if the actual parks, it was almost like a camping park, maybe. I don't even know that it was a trailer like an park. RV park. Yeah. So maybe they had bathrooms where people could shower or something. I don't know. But it just, I don't know how you live with kids and it's sanitary in a bus. I don't know why, and maybe his wife was in on this too, but it kind of pisses me off when, and no offense, I'm not. this is not a gender thing, but when men tell moms what they should and shouldn't do you know what i mean like if they're the sole or the primary serve uh um caretakers caretaker why they would be like well you really should use cloth diapers because guess who's washing and cleaning and do you using those Mm -hmm. andrea at this point you know exactly well you're just going to get more pissed about I'm, I him. Did, I didn't. Yeah, I knew that yeah. was going to happen. Not surprised. So moving into the Greyhound bus was one more stressor to Andrea's life. So, I mean, we're just piling shit on now. She was a stay-at-home mom with three kids. She's At this point, she was helping take care of her father, who was suffering from Alzheimer's. And she's living in this small bus. And so she's with three young kids in a bus all day, every day. And Trying not to have a mental breakdown, right? Yeah, exactly. And then she, when she does leave, she goes to take care of her dad, which is, you know, he's got Alzheimer's. It's, that's very hard to deal with. People at the trailer park where they lived were concerned, and they even said something to Rusty about it. They pleaded with him to help her. Rusty was adamant, though, that they had clear lines of responsibility in their relationship. And basically, it's not his job or his problem because that's her responsibility in the relationship. And I think it was, I don't know, for Rusty, I think that it was just, I think to him it was what she wanted to do. Well, I'm sure that she wasn't 
asking for help actively. I'm sure she was like, I got this. I got this. Exactly. Yeah. And and also she was more it seemed like he kind of started to pull away a little bit from the Warrenecki style teachings. And she was very, very, very into it. So even though it made things a lot harder on her. She's committed, right? Yeah. And maybe he was just like, well, this is what she wants to do. I don't know what to do about that. But, you know, we did. And like, you know, I understand that to some degree. Like I right now I'm not working outside the house. So I want to keep up with the house. Like Andrew works 60 hours a week. He shouldn't have to come home and clean up the house. Oh, yes, he should. <laughs> like, you know, because I'm like, you're doing that. I can handle this here. Like, when we both work outside the house, we 50-50 split the housework. Like, But, I mean, I understand exactly where you're coming from, and I think it's noble, and I think it's really sweet. However, when you work inside the house, you don't, you're, work, you're working 24 hours a day. Yeah. This is your job all day long. Yeah. You don't leave it. You can't just clock out. It's always here. Mm-hmm. So that gets wearing. Oh, yeah, absolutely it does. I will say, though, that um, because of how men use bathrooms, he does have to clean the, the toilet. <laughs> Good for you. I don't, I'm not touching that shit. No. <laughs> All the while, though, the Warrenekis are acting like religious doctors. They're doling out prescriptions for living the most righteous life. Rachel Warnecki wrote a letter to Andrea where she called her wicked and evil and demanded that she repent for her ways. What was she doing wrong? Apparently just being a woman makes you evil. I'm not sure if I will ever understand. This reminds me of Ed Gein's mother. Like, Mm -hmm. you do remember you are yourself a woman. Yeah. So, listen to this. Okay. Michael Warnecki is... He's very much of the position that women are inherently evil, basically, but also that modern mothers are far too permissive with their children. So shortly before the murders, Andrea received a newsletter from the Warrenekis that featured the poem Modern Mother Worldly. And here it is. Mm -hmm. Modern Mother Worldly was very, very lazy. All her children drove her crazy. The Bible told her to spank and train them, but society said she must never constrain them. The fruit of rebellion she did now see. On the day of judgment, she will have no plea. Modern mother worldly, cast in hell. Now what becomes of the children of such a Jezebel? Wow. What? In one writing, the witch in the wimp, and he spells wimp W-H-I-M-P, the (laughs) wimp, Warrenecki lays out his beliefs about women. He says, you may be married or single, brazen or reserved, striking or simple, a pagan or a Christian, but as a daughter of Eve, you're born with the nature of a witch. He goes on to say, the so-called pastors and preachers of today are passive wimps (laughs) ruled by the underlying domination of their contentious wives. A passive man may entertain a macho or charismatic image But his wimpish spirit (laughs) is seen by his refusal to rebuke the spirit of Jezebel, whether it be trying to rule as a preacher, teacher, or housewife. Okay. He also talks about Jesus's care for little ones, which Warnecke refers to as children. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck, and he'd be drowned in the depth of the sea. 
You mean Jesus, you're saying to kill yourself? Yeah. So while we're not going to get necessarily like spiritual here, I will say this. Tori and I are both Christians. You may not be, and that's fine. We'll get along just fine. Doesn't change anything. But here's the thing. Anything can be taken out of context, and the Bible is certainly one of those things that it happens with often. In today's world of fake news and screenshots and even videos going viral, I've kind of learned to take everything with a grain of salt. And I remember when, like when it first became mainstream for people to share videos on social media, you know, like there'd be uh, an altercation or an interaction with somebody and somebody would start filming it or whatever. And then that would go viral. I would think to myself, well, like, This is true, right? Because it's on video. Like, this person did say this thing, right? But now I kind of, I take all of that with a grain of salt and I want to see, like, I want to see everything that surrounded it because it's really easy to cherry pick one sentence and it sound completely wrong. I mean, people do it with us all the time. Mm -hmm. In iTunes reviews, people will literally pick one thing that we said and then disregard the entire rest of the episode where all of the context surrounding that one sentence says. And and honestly, a lot of people don't get when we're joking either. Um, that I remember happens in daily life as well. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. One, I feel like it was the Natalie Wood case where we said something about there being a female detective. Oh, right. Yes, know? yes. And it yes. was like in the 80s or whatever. And we made a joke commenting on how you know, men treated women like shit in that time, basically. And people took that as us being sexist against women, that we didn't believe that women could be detectives because we said all the men, because the men in that documentary were like, they kind of sounded surprised that there was a woman on the case or whatever. And we're like, oh, what do you, don't you have some eggs to fry or something? And like, we're making fun of them. Like we're making fun of that. I don't know. It was just, somebody took that completely out of context and went fucking wild about it. And I was like, you missed everything. Yeah. You missed everything. <laughs> like, you know, so I mean, it, that kind of stuff definitely happens. So what's happening here and the only reason I go into it is because it is a big part of the case. Andrea actually repeats this verse in the interrogation after the murders happen. Oh, wow. So it definitely had a profound effect on her. In the New Living Testament translation of the verse, so it's Matthew eighteen six seven like verses six through seven. If one of these little children believes in me and another person causes that child to sin, then it will be very bad for that person. It would be better for that person to have a millstone tied around his neck and be drowned in the deep sea. I feel sorry for the people in the world because of things that make people sin. Those things must happen, but it will be very bad for the person that causes those things to happen. So the explanation of that verse that I found in an online devotional site is... Jesus is telling us to be sensitive to the vulnerability of others, especially those who are weak, forgotten, and neglected among us. Of course, he didn't just preach it. He lived it. Extreme measures are to be used to keep from causing one of these little ones, quote-unquote, to stumble and fall. For Jesus and his followers, it's a very serious and horrific matter to cause the sinful downfall of another. His language is extreme. His warning is heartfelt. The little ones among us are extremely valuable to him and should be to us. It would be better to be drowned in the sea than to face Jesus having caused another to fall. Jesus cares deeply about the lost and died to redeem us. He surely doesn't want us contributing to others losing their way. So if you think about that and what that means in the context of what happened to Andrea and the fact that 
she was following this guy who was totally misinterpreting everything that he was teaching, first of all. That's so scary. Yeah. The Bible doesn't tell you to hate anybody. And and all he was was spreading hate, right? So what's so tragic about Andrea taking that verse to heart so much is because Michael Warrenecki is telling her that she's a bad mother, that she needs to repent because she's a woman and she's got a spirit of witchcraft and all these things and that she's causing them to stumble. But what it actually means is that she is the little one in that verse, not her children. Like her children too, in the sense that, you know, you don't want to cause them to grow up and be horrible people, right? That's not what she's doing, though. But Michael Warrenecki is making her feel that she is, that she's causing them. He's taking little things. It's just like Word of Faith, where they were saying that the two-year-old was crying because a demon was inside of them. When Andrea talks about how her children were acting and she felt like they were sinning and they were stumbling, she's saying they just did silly things. They weren't as respectful to Rusty's mother as they should have been. Sometimes little kids are that way, you know? Like, I know that my kids love both of me and Andrew's parents, but sometimes when we go, you know, they've just woken up from falling asleep in the car or whatever. When we get somewhere, they're like, meh, you know, they don't want anybody else to hold them or whatever. And sometimes that'll hurt other people's feelings. Like, and I understand that because they're like, oh, well, they don't like me. And I'm like, no, they're just sleepy right now. Like, they'll come around. You know, sometimes it takes them a little while to come around. That's the kind of stuff I think she's talking about. I really don't think her kids were walking up to Rusty's mom and like spitting in her face, you know? Right. It was probably just little kid stuff. But because of that influence that Michael Warrenecki had on her, she believed that this verse was talking about her being the person that needs to be in the millstone or have the millstone tied around her neck. And what Jesus is talking about is Michael Warrenecki. Michael Warrenecki is the person who is leading Other people who are weaker, who are vulnerable, who are susceptible to things that he's teaching that aren't true. And he's the one that Jesus is warning us about. So it's just, it's just heart, it's heartbreaking that, that I I feel like he's very responsible for what happened. Yes. He, I don't think that he said, go kill your kids. But I think that I think that it was what he was doing was really dangerous. And anybody who's following him could be put, especially because of her mental condition, right? She has a mental condition where she's already having delusions. She's having intrusive thoughts. She doesn't feel like she can tell anybody about it. And then on top of that, she's got somebody telling her that she's got the spirit of evil in her. And so she's having these intrusive thoughts and she doesn't want to get help because she doesn't want anybody to know that she's got what she believed was Satan inside of her. And Warrenecki did what he could, you know, spread his false teachings just so he could get his own recognition. Didn't matter how many people he loved dead and bloodied and dying along the way. Do you understand that the world does not revolve around you and your do whatever it takes, ruin as many people's lives, so long as you can make a name for yourself as an investigatory journalist, no matter how many friends you lose or people you leave dead and bloodied along the way, just so long as you can make a name for yourself as an investigatory journalist, no matter how many friends you lose or people you leave dead and bloodied and dying along the way? I don't know. It's awful. And, and then even now, he says, well, I didn't have anything to do with that. Like, that was her own deal. She had her own issues. 
too bad that it happened. But, but he's not a take, taking any accountability for his role in that and how much power he had. And he knew that. And he he yes. really, really exploited yes. that. Yes. And and he kind of distances himself from it now and is like, eh, well, you know, I sent her newsletters, but I sent everybody newsletters kind of thing. Like, you know. What was what am I supposed to do about that? She was writing him letters specifically about her situations, right? And then he would say, or his wife would say, "Well, you're evil. You're a Jezebel. You know, you're you've you're a daughter of Eve, and so you need to repent because you're so evil. And of course, your kids are going to stumble because look at what you're doing. Like, it's all her fault. And Bill Leonard, a dean and professor of church history at Wake Forest University says that this type of rhetoric represents the dark side of religious pluralism, of religion in general, and of Protestantism in particular. He points out that these views are often held by people with no institutional credentials and little, if any, accountability. He says that these beliefs develop from a gross misunderstanding of spirituality. So you can see the danger here of teaching people an entire way of life built on things that you yourself don't understand. <laughs> like, you're not interpreting them correctly and you have no training in them whatsoever. And it happens with a lot of things, other religions, I'm sure, too. I mean, even like with online courses out everywhere, you know, like you, everybody decides that they're an expert in something. And I think in a lot of situations, it's totally fine. But when you completely take over somebody's life, look at how dangerous it is i just well, it's not unlike it's it's this is a it's not exactly the same however for the sake of being a little dramatic like would you go to a doctor that wasn't certified and right. you're, you're giving them a lot of power and a lot of influence on your life some people really take their spirituality or their religion religion so seriously that if somebody that they trust and count on to help them, they will just do whatever they are told or read between the lines or mm -hmm. whatever, you know? And it, there's no doubt about the fact that... Yeah, Michael Warnecke. Yes, Warnecke was very, very... He had a lot of influence on her. And just because he's like, well, I mean, I did that with everybody. Like, yeah. bullshit. You yeah. knew what you were doing. Absolutely. Not, and like you said, not that he told her to kill her kids, but. Yeah. But everything that he was telling her in these letters, these are things that she's repeating over and over. So now you've got somebody who it's not necessarily that she doesn't know right from wrong. It's that she believed that what she was doing was right. She believed that it was the only way to save her children from the influence of Satan that she had in her. Mm. I mean, how sad is that? And where the fuck did that belief come from, Michael Warnecke? It doesn't come from Jesus. Right. I mean, I'll tell you that. That's all he was preaching. Exactly. It's just, it's insane. How, how would you feel if you got letters over and over and over from people that you respected telling you that you're just evil and a terrible mother and... Basically, your kids are fucked. You've already fucked them up so bad, there's not even any point anymore. Well, and she was evil just because of the, the fact that she's a she woman. was born. Yeah. yeah. Like, no, it's just, it's insane. I mean, it's, uh, you know, there's extreme, there's extreme. I don't even know that you could call it an extremist either because it's just simply so against. It's just wrong. What actual Christianity is. Yeah. And Michael Warnecke is so 
so fucking out there. He he still does this, by the way. He's still he still has and, yeah, followers. He's still, yeah. He started doing also like electronic and trance music. music? Yeah, I was going to say I, I, something came up about him being a musician and he was wearing a leather vest, <laughs> which I'm just saying is not living what was the word? Austin. Austere. Austere. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's ridiculous. It's insane. But he said that he he and his family were the only true Christians left and that they're like Noah and his family who God saved from the flood and like that. I don't know. I think I guess that he thinks that they are specifically chosen and that nobody else is going to go to heaven but them because they're the only real Christians out there. That is literally it's batshit. It is batshit, but that's how cults get started. Yes, yes, yes. I Like, here's what I don't get. Why is he just allowed to still have a platform? He's got, like, a YouTube channel. He's got all this music and shit. I just don't understand why we can look at that and say he had such a power over her that, again, he did not directly, he did not tell her to kill her children, but he's, he's, He's teaching things that make people believe and do very, very crazy things that's a dangerous path. I just don't understand why he has still has a platform. I really hope people don't follow him. But I think they do. Yeah. I mean, there are people I mean, there that have do. to be people who still follow him. It's scary. I it just, is. I don't like it. I don't like it. So. No, sir. I don't like it. <laughs> right before Andrea turned 35, she gave birth to their fourth son, Luke. In the summer of 1999, when Luke was about four months old, Rusty, who was, he worked at, I guess he still works for NASA, I don't know, he worked there forever, received a call that was eerily similar to another one he'd received less than two years later, come home. Andrea told Rusty to come home because she needed help. When he arrived at their bus, their bus, I know, that's I cannot, he found Andrea chewing her fingers, I'm, we're not talking about chewing her nails, she's chewing her actual fingers. She's shaking and she's saying, I need help. So she's having a nervous breakdown. Before she was having, like when Rusty talks about it, he he believes that this is when everything started. This is when the outward symptoms really started. However, if you look back, I mean, we already said that people in the in the trailer park that they lived in were saying that, and her friends, she was reclusive. She wasn't physically active anymore. Well, they were like, you need to help her. Yeah, there's something going on. He's like, no, this is the life she wants. I'm like, well, okay. And maybe, I don't think that she was afraid of Rusty. I think that she was afraid to admit what she believed was failure. Well, pride got in the way. Yeah. And, you can say that, I think. And But if you look at your wife, and she's not, she's not the same as she was, and she's kind of a shell of a person... And she's losing a lot of weight and she doesn't look the same anymore and she doesn't care. Now, I'm not saying that everybody has to get up and wear makeup and, you know, glamour shot themselves every day or whatever. But if you see pictures of Andrea before they started having kids, and I get it, like some days you don't have enough time to do your makeup and stuff like that. But I'm telling you, she was a different person. She looked completely different. She no longer cared about her appearance. I mean, what are the symptoms of depression? You know, it's yeah, like you lose outward, interest. and Well, yeah, and your outward appearance can directly reflect how you feel on the inside. Like, absolutely. So 
if other people are saying, look, I think she needs help. I think she's going through something. And you're looking at her and saying, you know what? She doesn't look the same anymore, but I think she's fine. Like, I don't know. I, I think there's naivete. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or something there. But I don't know. It, it does kind of suck that it's like, okay, you're supposed to be my person, right? Like you're supposed to be the person that knows me more intimately than anybody else. So if I'm going through something, then I would hope that you would notice it. But, but it seems like, I mean, just based on what he said to her friends, like, well, that's her journey. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think they had, obviously, they didn't have a good marriage. I mean, I don't think that they did. I don't think that they fought all the time. I think that they just existed together. Yeah. And they were their own separate. They weren't a team. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think when when you live like that, when when you are completely separate, you can both have completely different views of the status of things, right? Like, I remember listening to this podcast of these two people who now do like marriage conferences and stuff. And they were saying, and it's, I've, I've, this has happened to me too, but it's like, they said that they went out to dinner for one of their anniversaries or whatever. It was their 10 year anniversary. And the wife was like, so how do you feel like this whole like marriage thing is going? And he's like, oh, I think it's great. I thought everything's been going really good. And she's like, are you serious right now? <laughs> like, she's like, I hate being married to you right now. Like, this is not going well for me. Why do you think it's going so well? But it's like, you know, they had to work through a lot of stuff. And I think a lot of times when you get busy doing other things and, you know, whatever, you got young kids working, all the stuff, you start to lose that connection. And I think they just, they just were not in good communication. They you were know on what the I mean? same page. Yeah. Yeah. So... I, I don't know. There's just so many things. Can you imagine if just maybe one of those things had changed? What what difference it could have made? But I don't know. It's sad. I think so the biggest change is getting Warren Eki out of the picture. I, I think so, too. I really do. Because they would have stayed living in a home. And Andrea wouldn't have been living in a bus with her kids. Like, she, at least if she was home every day, she would she would have room. You know, she could go to a different room if she needed a break for a little bit. I don't know. It's just, it's, there's a lot, there's a lot there. But when Rusty came home to that, he didn't know what to do. She's having a nervous breakdown. So he loaded her and the kids up in the car and he took them to Galveston and they went for a walk on the beach. And later people gave Rusty hell about that. And they're like, what, what was that about, dude? Like she's having a nervous breakdown. Why are you taking her for a walk on the beach? And he's like, I didn't know what else to do like this is something that he didn't have any experience in he didn't know what to do with her yeah I was way over his head right yeah I think so but after that he took them he took Andrea to her parents house and well and the kids and they stayed there but Andrea that that next day attempted suicide so she took an overdose of her dad's one of his uh sleeping pills I think and they were able to get her to the hospital, so they were able to kind of get her stabilized. And then from there, the hospital sent her to a psychiatric unit. So at that point, she's diagnosed with major depressive disorder, which is an understatement. But again, I don't think she's telling people about these visions, right, at this point. So they diagnose her with major depressive disorder, and they send her home with Zoloft, but they keep her in the hospital for a week. 
at the end of that week, she's released from the hospital, not because the doctors think she's ready, not because her treatment has completed, because her insurance ran out. So wow. they're like, sorry, got to go, kicked you out. So upon release, she's referred to Dr. Eileen Starbranch, who recommended switching from Zoloft to Zyprexa, and Dr. Starbranch diagnosed her with bipolar disorder. Andrea didn't want to be on medication, and more than that, it went against the Warrenecki's teachings because Michael Warrenecki believed that medications and doctors were bad. Of course he did. Yes, of course he did. So she started flushing her medication down the toilet. So she refused to take it. She stopped feeding her kids because oh. she felt like they were eating too much. With no medication, she started to hallucinate the same vision she'd had after the birth of her first child. I mean, things are just getting really bad. She started to be really paranoid. She thought there were video cameras on the ceiling. She had visions to get a knife over and over and over. Like, all the time she was hearing, get a knife, get a knife, get a knife. So on July 20th, 1999, Andrea took a steak knife from the kitchen and she went to the bathroom. And when Rusty realized he couldn't find her, he goes looking for her in the bathroom and she had a knife to her throat. So Rusty is like, give me the knife, put it down. And she's like, no, just let me do this. Let me do this. So he does end up wrestling the knife away from her and he immediately took her to the hospital. So at this point, he's like, okay, we know what it is. And when she starts having these situations, he knows now that she needs to go to the hospital. So this time she's taken to a private psychiatric treatment center and given Haldol, which is a powerful antipsychotic. While at the center and after 10 days of being in a catatonic state. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Andrea confesses to the doctor that she had the knife vision upward of 10 times in several days. And she was afraid that these visions predicted violence. Upon entering the hospital, Andrea had claw marks on her legs from trying to hold herself back from hurting anybody else. I mean, she's literally like clawing at herself to not hurt. Who's anybody else? Her children. Like, you in danger, girl. Like, there's something going on here. But they go with the major depressive disorder diagnosis again. So at this point, she's not been diagnosed with postpartum psychosis. Nobody's connecting those dots. And they said she'd probably had it for a long time, but her symptoms weren't severe enough to draw concern. While her family is discussing Andrea's circumstances and mental health, they realized that a lot of them had similar but less severe issues and had sought professional help. So according to the documentary, women with relatives that suffer from major depressive disorder have a greater risk of developing postpartum depression and postpartum psychosis. The documentary also says that 50% of women with postpartum psychosis are later diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Do you know why? No. Because women are of witches and it's the demons inside. Oh my god, how did I miss that? That's what it is. I forgot. (laughs) Silly me. Andrea's doctors suggested shock treatments. They still did that then? Seems pretty extreme. Yeah. Rusty and Andrea said no thank you. And after three weeks, Andrea was released from the hospital with a prescription for Effexor, Wellbutrin, and Haldol, and she was supposed to go visit Dr. Starbranch once a month. Once a month? That just seems like a... That does not seem enough to me. Yeah. After Andrea's second suicide attempt, her mom tells Rusty, no more bus, you are getting a house. So get out of that bus. 
So by September, the Yates family is in a house and Andrea's condition really does start to improve. Over the next four months, she continues to get better. But despite warnings from doctors, Andrea and Rusty want to have another baby. So the doctor is like, no, you cannot have another child. If you have another kid, you've got a 50 to 80% chance of postpartum psychosis happening. And the doctor said that she is, Andrea is one of the five sickest people she's ever seen in her entire life. Oh, wow. So, you know, they're telling them, please do not do this. Do not do this. So Andrea stopped taking all of her meds. Hmm. and she stopped taking her birth control, and within four months, she was pregnant with Mary. So the author, Susie Spencer, said that Rusty explained it to her because, you know, obviously people are like, why have a fifth kid? Why? When you knew that 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 was really causing her to deteriorate. And he said, well, it's kind of like this. Okay. (laughs) If somebody is going to give you the keys to a brand new Mercedes-Benz, but they tell you you're going to have the flu for two weeks. You'd take it, right? It's a free car. So that's how we were. We were like, okay, well, Andrea might get sick. Maybe she won't. But we know what it is now. We have the medication to help her. So I think that um, that comparison is fucking bullshit because yeah. two weeks of the flu, not exactly the same as postpartum psychosis. No. And look at where we are now. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like... They didn't take it seriously at all and an 80% chance. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and the thing about Andrea's situation is it didn't just last for like a year after she had a kid. It, this, is a, this is a state of being for her now. Yeah, it's, it's an ongoing thing. Yeah. She needs constant medication and therapy for this. So... Taking her off of this medication and saying, eh, we're going to chance it, see how it goes. I, it's just totally irresponsible. On November the 30th, 2000, Mary was born and Andrea was coping the best she could. Later in the spring of 2001, so three months before the murders, Andrea's father died and Andrea started to deteriorate again. And I think she felt like it was her fault because she was a nurse and she was taking care of him. So she felt like she'd failed him, I think, mm. in a way. Um, she stopped talking she stopped taking any liquids she started scratching bald spots on her head like scratching her hair so much because she believed that satan or i don't know somebody had had etched something into her scalp and she was trying to find it so she's like literally pulling spots of her hair out scratching at it oh my gosh she refused to feed mary Rusty recognized the signs, though, and he took her for treatment. So over the next two months, Andrea was treated and released from the private psychiatric center two times and placed on different medications with different dosages. Two days before she killed her children, Andrea had a follow-up appointment where they told the psychiatrist that Andrea was not improving and her dosages were adjusted again, and then they sent her home. And that's where we're going to stop today. Okay. So next week, we will dive into the tragic events of June 20th, 2001, and the trial of Andrea Yates. If you're a Patreon subscriber, you'll have immediate access to part two. Uh, We will also have our Patreon bonus episode for this month out this week. So lots of stuff on the Patreon right now. And uh, plus, if you've never signed up for it, all of our previous episodes that you can binge. So lots of stuff going on there. And if you're already a member, then you can head on to part two now. Thank you. Yep. See you next week. Bye. Bye.